So the, the Bible teaches that you and I, the things that we do influence the next generation. Many times we think that the things that we do really don't have any effect on anybody else other than than us and that it really doesn't have any impact on generations to come. But the Bible teaches the opposite of that. Notice what it says there in your outline from Psalm 25. It says, who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way that he should choose and his soul will abide in prosperity and underline this and his descendants will inherit the land. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that as we live our lives in a certain way, we pass on a godly heritage. Not only that, not just a godly heritage, but the Bible talks about just materially living our lives in a certain way causes us to be able to pass some other things on. Notice what it says from Proverbs chapter 19. It says, houses and wealth are an inheritance from fathers. And that some, because of the way that they live their lives, can pass on a godly heritage. Some can pass on a material heritage, which is a good thing. And then the Bible says, notice this next verse, Proverbs 13. It says, a good man leaves an inheritance for his, and you want to underline, his children's children. Now, here, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the wise man is the guy who does things in such a way that affects not only the next generation, but the generation after that. Fools, on the other hand, will think about what it is that makes me happy. Whereas the wise man thinks about what's going to be best for the next generation. A wise man realizes that the choices that he makes, the things that he does, will directly influence the next generation. But a fool only thinks about what's going to actually benefit him for the weekend. As a parent... And as, as you know, this is, for those of you who are parents, you know that parenting is an ongoing journey. But I'm becoming more and more convinced as I look into the lives of my children that I am passing on to them a heritage, whether that's good or bad. I'm passing on to them things, whether I mean to or not. They are picking up things from me. They're picking up things from, from other people. But primarily in our family, they are learning how do you do life? How do you do family based upon the family that they are growing up in? I've come to realize that, that as a child growing up in my family, these kids, as they look at me, they're going to have a paradigm as to how they will ultimately treat their spouse. It will either be that they will grow up with a paradigm of treating their spouse with respect, or there will be demeaning and, and uh, critical comments that are made. There will be a, a paradigm as they grow up. They will learn whether family is important or they will learn where family is not so important based upon what they see in me. They will learn from me whether or not I think that relationships within the family are permanent or whether they're temporary as long as they are, you know, convenient. Statistically, little girls are going to grow up and they're going to marry somebody just like their dad whether that's good or bad. And so I realized that my four little girls, as they grow up in this family, they're going to be looking for somebody who's just like me. And my hope is that when they look for somebody who's like me, that that will be somebody that I look on and say, I'm so glad that you married this person because I love what I see in the life of this person that you've chosen to marry. But they're going to be looking for somebody who's a lot like me. My little boys are going to be looking as they look at me. They're going to be learning how do they treat their spouse when they grow up. And they're going to be learning that as they look at me. Now, they're going to be learning how to respect authority. Is it important to be a citizen? Is it important to follow the rules? How do you manage money? They are learning that from the family of origin, and that's my family. Does that make sense so far? So my hope... 
My desire is to see that my children grow up so that at the end of my life, I can look at them and say, based upon the example that I've provided for you, you you got to make some great choices because you got to see how it's supposed to be done. Now, you know that there is no guarantee. There are times when wonderful parents raise children and sometimes those children, for whatever reason, choose not to be everything that, that uh, God had called them to be. The Bible says there in your outline that we are to train up a child and the way that he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from. That comes from the book of Proverbs. A proverb is not an absolute truth. It's a general statement. And so generally speaking, if you train up your children in the way that they should go, even when they're old, they will not depart from it. That's important because Noah is a godly man. Noah raises, he hopes to raise three godly sons. Ultimately, two of those sons will turn out very well, but one of them is not going to turn out so well. So whatever the outcome in my family, my hope is to look at my children and hopefully their children and say, I'm so glad for the way that I lived my life because I see that it has a positive influence on you. Because every one of us is passing something on to that next generation. Every one of us is the result of what was passed on to us from our previous generation. Most of us grew up in homes where divorce was very common. And so most of us, as we come into marriage, we know what we don't want. We just don't know what we do want. And many of us, based upon the things, the family of origin that that we were born in, the, the example that we saw, we are now having to deal with some of those things and we are trying to figure out how is it that you respond to all of that? How is it that you respond to all of that from a biblical perspective? Our society now teaches people to say, well, how do you feel about that? And really, what's going to be best for you? What's the best thing? You know, you have to look out for you. You have to do something nice for you. But the Bible teaches us to ask ourselves, what is best for the next generation? And I want to talk about that today. It's something that David recognized about 800 years before Jesus was born. It's a verse that you become familiar, familiar with here at Calvary Chapel. And here's what David says. David says, now that I'm old and gray, don't forsake me, but give me time to tell this new generation and their children too about all your mighty miracles. David was a guy who later on in life, realized that that he needed to convey some things to the next generation. But he also realized that the way that he had lived his life caused a great deal of harm in his his immediate family. And so when he becomes old, he says, you know, I I want time just to tell the people about your great miracles. Now, here's why this is so important. Any church, and I believe this is important for us as a church as we think about the next generation, but any church that does not keep the next generation in mind in the way that they do things ultimately is a church that will go out of business. Most people in this room come from some type of church background, but the church that you grew up in didn't speak to where you were, and so as you grew up, 88%, well, let me jump to a statistic, but 88% of all high school people or high school, whatever they are, high schoolers, when they reach the age of 18 who grow up in a church, will now leave the church never to return. Why? They grew up in a church that did things for the generation that was past, but not for the generation that was coming up. It wasn't the message that we walked away from. It was the methodology. And so at Calvary Chapel, we've chosen to do things in such a way that that continuously speaks to the generation that's coming up. Does that make sense? Now, 
The last generation of churchgoers sadly would say, well, I, I, I don't like to do the things in the way that, that the, the new church does. I, you know, I don't like the music. I don't like the clapping. And I don't like the, just the guitar. And why do we have to have so many drums? And what's that with that bass guitar and the guitar and all of that? And maybe you've heard that. And, and, and you know what I've come to realize is that some of us come from what's called a contemporary church background. And, and yet what was contemporary back in 1985? It ain't contemporary anymore. Have you noticed that? And so we've chosen as a church to always be thinking about the next generation that's coming up. And yet, sadly, many times in churches, the question isn't what's best for the next generation, like David said, but the question is, what do I like? How do I feel comfortable? And and why can't it be be more centered around me? And yet a church that does that is a church that ultimately will go out of business. So a couple of things. First of all, we've talked about how there are, we are all responsible for how we how we relate ourselves to the next generation. We're all passing things on. We've all come into this world from a family of origin and we've picked up some things along the way. Some of that's good and some of that's bad. But ultimately, there's going to come a day when I'm going to stand before the Lord and here's what he's going to say. And you want to write this down. And this is the fundamental truth of life. Ultimately, I am responsible. I'm responsible for where I am spiritually. I'm responsible for how I manage myself. I'm responsible for how I rear or raise my children. I'm responsible for how I represent the Lord in this community. I am responsible. And on that day, I can't point to anybody else and say, well, Lord, look what they did to me because ultimately I am responsible. Notice this verse on your, out, on, on your outline from Hebrews. It says, it's appointed for man to die once. Now underline that, die once. And then the judgment. It's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. And uh, the reason that's so important is the Bible teaches that we die once and then there is judgment. By the way, that is what we call the reincarnation verse. Reincarnation holds that you die many times and you get a new body each time and you keep going on. But the Bible says it's appointed to die once and then what? Judgment. And on that day, none of anything that's ever happened to me is going to matter. The only thing that's going to matter is where I am with the Lord. What's going to matter on that day is how I lived my life before the Lord. Does that make sense? So the fool, write this down, thinks about now. But the wise man thinks about the future. Notice this verse. It says, the wise man saves for the future, but the foolish man spends whatever he gets. A wise man thinks ahead, but a fool doesn't and even brags about it. And Paul would say it like this. Paul says, I'm focusing all of my energies on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. So here's what he says. We need to be thinking about the future. How is this affecting my future? How is this affecting the lives of those who will come after me? Now that's important for today's Bible study because last week we left off with a man committing a sin against his father, not really realizing the effect that it was going to have on the next generation. And so not really realizing the effect it would have ultimately on future generations. And so we pick that up in Genesis chapter 10 as we look at somewhat of a genealogy. Some call it the table of nations. But let's look at it from the perspective of what takes place when one man sins, what takes place in the next generation and the generations to follow. Make sense so far? Okay. Verse 1, chapter 10. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, Japheth, the sons of Noah, who were born to, born to them after the flood, the sons that were born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, of course, that was uh, the, the first son, or were, were the second son, were Gomer, underline Gomer. Uh, ultimately, we're going to find that he was not a Marine, but Gomer and Magog, underline Magog, 
Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes absolute sense, doesn't it? Now, here's the thing, and I'm not going to go through each one of these names. Some of them are a little hard to track down, but but just to give you an idea, names change over thousands of years. And so let me just point a few of these out, and you can can write them down. First of all, Gomer, it says there in verse 2, these were the sons of Japheth were Gomer. Gomer would ultimately become Gomer-ni or Germany. So you might want to write that down because Gomer will settle in the area that you and I would call Germany. We'll find that Japheth's sons tend to head towards, towards Europe. Medei will become Medes and ultimately we will call it Iran. That's the area of Iran today. Javan becomes Greece and that's just the ancient word for Greece. Tyrus is just simply the ancient word for Italy. Magog is very, very interesting because Magog, and you'll find this throughout the Bible, but Magog is the area that you and I would call Russia. It's uh, referred to as the area of the most northern area from, from Israel. And if you, take a, if you take a line from Israel and you go straight up, you come right into, into Russia. Now, he says you have uh, Medei, Javan, and then you have Tubal, or Magog, which is Russia, Tubal was actually a city-state within the area of Russia and became the town called Tobolsk, which is simply an an old name of uh, a major, it was a city-state that became part of Russia. Then you have Meshach. Meshach was Moscovia, uh, which is also an old name for Russia, which ultimately became Moscow. So... Later on in Ezekiel 38, it will use all of these names and it will refer to them as all being in the land of Rosh, which we would now call Rasha or Rasha. So just a a little bit of history, just to, uh, you know, I don't know what you do with that. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, underline that, Riphath, and Togarma. Now a couple of things. Ashkenaz, what is that? Ashkenaz just simply is European. If you go to Israel today, you will see the Jewish nation and you will have two groups. You will have the Ashkenazi Jewish people and the Sephardic Jewish people. The Sephardic Jewish people look more Mediterranean. The Ashkenazi Jewish people come from Europe. They look more European. And those are the ones who are always in political power. So when you see Netanyahu and, and those, those guys, they're always Ashkenazi. They look very European and not, not so far, um, not too Mediterranean. Tagarma is just Armenian. And you'll hear if you click in House of Tagarma, that's what will come up in, if you do a Google search. So, did that change anybody's life so far? Okay. Well, these become, these are kind of the good guys, you might say. And it says the sons of Javon were Elisha, the Tarshish, Kittim, Dodaman, and from these coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now we come to Ham. Ham's the guy who sinned real bad in the last chapter. And it says the sons of Ham were Cush, underline Cush, Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan. So, uh, verse 7. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah, Sabbath, Rama, Sebekta, and the sons of Rabbah were Sheba and Dedan. Now next to Sheba and Dedan, you might want to write Saudi Arabia because that's where they come from. Verse 6, it says the sons of Ham were Cush, 
Cush is simply the area that you would call Ethiopia today. Uh, Misraim is just the area that you would call Egypt today. And Put is Libya. And so these, these are uh, less, typically less than friendly nations to the gospel or to, to the God of the Bible. But verse 8, it says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. Underline this. Uh, this is going to be the, the grandson of Ham. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, this is where it gets a little bit interesting because Nimrod's going to become the leader of most of these people. Nimrod is simply the word for rebellion. That comes from Hitchcock's Bible de- uh, Dictionary. And so it, his name means rebellion. He is on the, the plain of Shinar, and you might want to write this down, which is in present-day Babylon. And uh, then uh, notice it says in verse 9, it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I want you to underline the word before. The word before is simply the word face in Hebrew. And so he was a mighty hunter, literally, they would say, in the face of the Lord. And we're going to find out that this is not a good thing. This is a bad thing. And then it says that he was mighty. You might want to underline that word because mighty how? And it says, well, it could mean powerful. By implication, it means a warrior or tyrant. And so the the idea is he's going to be a mighty warrior in the sense that he's going to be a tyrant in the face of God. This is not going to be a good thing. So Cush has a son uh, there on your outline. It says Cush had a son named Nimrod who became the world's first great conqueror. And uh, at this point, there's nobody to conquer because they're all one. And essentially, he goes around conquering his own people. That'll be important for our study as we go. Verse 11, it says, And from the land went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh. Underline Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh is interesting because that would be from the line of Ham who sinned against his father. The Ninevites, you'll recall that there was a certain prophet who was called to go to Nineveh. And his name was? Jonah, Jonah and the fish, or Jonah and the whale, however you'd want to say that. And it's interesting, Jonah doesn't want to go because these people are so despicable. History records that they were really into torture, which is one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go and tell them that they're all going to perish because he didn't want them to do to him what they do to everybody else. The Ninevites were the type of people who would take their prisoners and they had perfected filleting people alive and, and skinning them alive. So uh, not uh, good people, bad people, you choose. So uh, you decide. Verse 12. Uh, this is Ham's uh, descendants. Verse 12, And Rezin between Nineveh and Calah, the great city, Mizraim became the father of Ludim, and Adamin, Lahabim, Neph, and it just, I can't even pronounce it, and some other people. Verse 14, uh, the Kalashim, and, and then came the Philistines. Now underline Philistines. Philistines. Good people, bad people. Ultimately, God says you have to wipe them out. Uh, you have, uh, you know, the Philistines were the enemies of ancient Israel, and uh, they, they were constantly at war. Goliath was, a, was from the Philistines. David has to, to go and fight. It's a constant problem, incredible immorality. I won't even go into it because it's church. But it's interesting that you and I refer to the land of Israel as the land of Palestine. Palestine. That comes from a guy called Lawrence of Arabia, a British guy who was commissioned to go over there and help put things back together. And uh, he began to call this area Palestine. It's sort of an insult to the Jewish people. In English, we say Palestine, but it's literally Philistine. 
And so when you say we're going to Palestine, you're saying we're going to the land of Philistine. And, uh, and so it becomes somewhat of an insult to them. So uh, this is not a good people, but they're the descendants of Ham. Verse 15, Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn Heth. And the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archite, and the Sinite. Now, most of these have been extinct for a couple of thousand years, but I want you to underline Sinite. Underline Sinite. The word Sinite in Hebrew, we say Sinite in English, but it's Sine in Hebrew. And it refers to the area of China, or or Chine, you might say. Uh, Sinology is the study of China. So if you click in Sino, S-I-N-O, and you do a Google search, it brings up everything that you'd want to know about China. So that's the area that becomes China. And this is one of the descendants of Ham. China has not been open to the gospel uh, for the most part for thousands, thousands of years or, or to the things of God. Verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came... I'm sorry, wrong chapter. Verse 18, the Arvite and the Zanarite and the Hamathite and afterwards the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon as you go to Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go towards where? Sodom and... Good people, bad people, biblically speaking. Not so good. These would be the direct descendants of Ham. Again, Noah would say... The way that you're living your life, Ham, is going to become a curse onto your child. And ultimately, we find that that curse goes from generation to generation. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. So that is the sons of Ham. When you look at the sons of Ham, you say, you know, not the best group of guys. You have uh, Ham, who came from a godly guy, chooses to sin against his dad. Noah says, you do, you do this, and it's bringing a curse in your life. And you have the Canaanites who will come from him. You have Sodom and Gomorrah who will come from him. You have the Ninevites who perfected torture, and they will come from him. Uh, c- countries that would be openly hostile to the, to the gospel and the God of the Bible. Nimrod, and we'll talk about him in a minute, will come from Ham. And and Ham thought it was just a minor thing that he did one day doing something to his dad, didn't think it would affect anybody. And the message of this is that it goes on for generation after generation after generation as today many of us here are living the consequences of decisions that our ancestors have made. And I could tell you my story and you could tell me your story, but there were some major mistakes over the past few generations. Am I alone in this? Good, good. I mean, sad, but I just didn't want to be alone. Verse 21. So also Shem. Okay, now we have another son. This is a a good guy, Shem. From the word Shem, when you hear the word anti-Semitic, we're actually saying anti-Shemitic because from Shem comes the Jewish people. And so that's where that word comes from. Verse 21 says, also Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Underline Eber. And now Eber means crossing over. Later on, Eber will be called Hebrew which would mean cross over, just be a few hundred years later and the language will change a little bit. And the older brother of Japheth, children were born, verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam and Ashur, Arkash, that guy, Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, uh, apparently there's a wizard there, and Hul and Gether and Mash, uh, Arpachshad became the father of Shelah and Shelah became the father of Eber. So, Two sons were born to Eber, verse 25, and the name of one was Peleg. His, mean, his name means division, for in his days, 
on the earth, the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, it's an interesting thing that Bible scholars look at. I'm not going to spend time on it. But this word, when it says the earth was divided, implies that, that there was a shift, there was a breaking of continents. Because when it says the earth was divided, it's not talking about, when we talk about the people of the earth, it's talking about the earth specific. And something happened in that day. We don't really know. That's just a conjecture. So who knows? Well, verse, we're going to skip down to verse 32, uh, mostly because I can't pronounce the other names. Verse 32, it says, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now, so here's the question. We see that we ran into this situation where everybody's separated and we see what's happened through the generations, but how did we wind up in this circumstance? Well, chapter 11 actually takes place before chapter 10, but you get kind of the overview. Now you get the specific view. We pick it up in verse 1, and it says, Now the whole earth used the same language, underline that, and the same words. It's interesting. It's not on your outline, but... Uh, in that day, there was one language. And in other parts of the Bible, it tells us that this chapter is a picture of the end times. I won't go into that today because uh, we just don't have the time and uh, we, we cover that in our Revelation series. But it's an interesting thing that when it talks about this is a picture of what would take place in the last days, it says that in that day, everybody had one language. And uh, now, for the first time in thousands of years, you and I have one language where we can communicate back and forth from other countries for the first time in thousands of years through computers. You can type in English and it will come out in another language in another country. It's a fascinating thing because we're going to find, again, I'm not going to spend time on this, but the Bible teaches that this chapter is a picture of how things would be in the last day. You might want to write down Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. It says, in the last days, two things would happen, that travel would be increased unlike any other time in, in history, and that knowledge would increase unlike any other time. You can look that up later. I took it off the outline today, but, but it's an interesting thing. Verse 2. It says, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, modern-day uh, uh, Iraq, you might say, or Babylon. And they settled there. Now, I want you to underline a couple of things as we go through this. They said, underline that, to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used brick for stone. They used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, interesting, uh, just a, a quick comment there they decide to make a tower that would ultimately become a religious center. And they want to go up into the heavens. It's not so much that they want to go high into the heavens. I mean, they're, they're not thinking that they can build the Empire State Building, but the idea is that they want to have a place where they can go up. It'll be higher. Everybody can see that would be the place of worship. We're going to find that that worship is not of God, but they will have this place that everybody can point to. And uh, in, in doing this, they say, look at our high tower that we can do, and it's so high up, and it, we're just amazing that we can do this. And so uh, you, you kind of miss this, but in verse 
verse 5, it says, as they're building their tower high up, so everybody can say it's so high. In verse 5, it says, and so the Lord came down. Underline that, which is interesting to me because what's taking place is that they're boasting in the fact that they can build something so high, but God still has to come down even to see it. It's sort of like when your child takes popsicle sticks and builds something and says, look what I've done. You go, that's cute. So um, there you have it. Verse five. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people. They, They all have the same language. And they have the same language and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Can you imagine if the whole earth for the past few thousand years spoke the same language? Every time there was an innovation, we'd be able to communicate that around the earth because we all spoke the same language. We'd be able to innovate so much faster. And so when you look at what's taken place in the past 30 years, you and I have moved into what is called the information age where information begins to explode exponentially. And so God looks down at them and says, you know, if, if they go on like this, they're, they're going to increase and increase and increase. But here's what's going to happen. Their leader is Nimrod. Nimrod is a guy who's a great tyrant in the face of God. He's leading this bunch, and as he leads this bunch, another verse tells us that he was a conqueror. There's nobody to conquer but his own people, and so that's who he's conquered. And the idea is they're not going to be able to, to stop doing any evil. Anything that they want to do, they're going to be able to do. So God says, we need to do something about this. Verse 7, come let us go down and confuse their language so that they will, all not, they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it became, its name was called Babel. Now underline Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad from the face of the whole earth. That's interesting, the word Babel. Bab is simply the word for for gate. El is the word for God. Literally, the name in its original length and the original usage was simply gate of God or heaven's gate. They thought that as they built this tower, they'd be able to communicate with what was ever out there. When God confused their language, the word Babel changed simply they just referred to babel and it became common to refer to babel somebody's babbling we don't understand but the original the original usage was heaven's gate that change anybody's life mine neither so anyways it's uh, just one of those interesting things so the book of revelation points back to this and says this is a picture of what it's going to be in the last days and and three things that that it says and again i didn't i didn't put this in you can go to the revelation series but but first of all, they're going to have a one-world leader. The Bible talks about that. You and I would know him as the Antichrist. Nimrod is a picture of that. They will have a one-world government, which is what they tried to establish there in this time of Babel. And it's been tried to be established several times. It's never worked. The Bible says there is coming a time when that will be established. Fortunately, the church will no longer be here. And then thirdly, they wanted to establish a one-world religion. And they did that by creating this tower, a place where they could go and they could worship, where they could, they could have that place where they would be able to, to say that it was their very own. So a, a couple of things. And, and by the way, um, again, not, not part of the, the outline, but 
so much of our religious practice, and I won't go into it today, but it's in our Revelation series, so much of our religious practice comes from what takes place in this chapter. If you ever wonder why we celebrate the birth of Christ on December 24th, as opposed to maybe in September when he was really born, it comes from what takes place at this time. If you ever heard of the Yule log, it takes place back there. It's something totally non-Christian. If you ever want to know why is it when we celebrate Easter, which comes from the word Ishtar, which is a pagan holiday, and why there's bunnies and little eggs celebrating the resurrection of Christ, it comes from this chapter. So if that doesn't do anything but say, I need to get that Revelation series, you might find it interesting. But you notice in verse 4, this new thing that they were doing. I want you to notice what's going on. Verse 3, I had you underline it. It says, they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they use brick and stone. And they use tar for mortar. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves, a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So I want you to write this down. For this generation, it was all about us and not about God. It's all about what we can do, what's best for us, It's all about us. And by the way, again, this is a picture of the last days also. It was a very me-centered society. And then I also want you to notice in verse 4, man's reasoning, write this down, was elevated over God's word. Man's reasoning was elevated over God's word. You say, now, I, I don't get the fact, you know, they wanted to build a city. There's nothing wrong with that. They wanted to just be there and be together. And, and yet it's, it's an interesting thing because this was exactly opposite of what God had said. Notice on your outline from Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and what's it say? Fill the earth. Now, now why is that so important? A couple of times in Genesis chapter 9, God said, I want you guys to multiply and I want you to spread out. All of a sudden, you find that this one who comes from Ham, who didn't think that his actions mattered, This one comes on the scene. He says, I want to be a one-world leader. Not only only do I want to be a one-world leader, I know that God's word says spread out, go throughout all the earth, but I want everybody to stay here. And here's how I'm going to sell this. I'm going to sell this by being a very me-centered society. And it's fascinating how this society and all of this comes from a guy who did something hundreds of years earlier who looked at his actions and said, what's the big deal? What do you mean my son's cursed by me doing this? I mean, this isn't going to have any effect on on anything other than me. Now, here's why I, I, I say this. If Ham would have seen hundreds of years earlier, he had a way of looking down and saying, you know, by me doing this to my dad, me sinning in this way, this is going to affect my son. This is going to affect the generation after that. I mean, I'm going to become Canaanites. I'm going to become Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to become Ninevites. I'm going to become Nimrod, who's ultimately going to establish everything that is the antithesis of what God is. I wonder if Ham would have looked at his life a little bit more seriously and said, you know, I I need to not do this. Does that make sense? Now, here's where we're going with this. Today is is the day that uh, we set aside to celebrate communion. And I know that Genesis chapter 10 is, is very academic and had a little bit of sound problems in the, in the beginning. And um, 
But I, I, I wonder if, if maybe in all of this, that there is right now something in your life or my life that maybe I don't think is all that important. And I think it's not going to really affect anybody other than me. But maybe right now, if, if you're in that situation, maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and saying, you know, I want to speak to you about this. Because we're, this doesn't really matter in your life. Let, let me tell you what this means in that next generation. And, and here's what it's going to mean in the next generation. You see, may, maybe you're here today and you're thinking about walking out on, on your spouse and your family. And you're thinking, well, I need to be happy. I need to be fulfilled. I, I, you know, it's, what's going to make me happy and what's going to fulfill me? And God would want to say to you, well, it might look good now, but what's that going to look like in that next generation? Maybe there's an area of dishonesty in your life and nobody knows about it but you. And God's speaking to you and he's saying, what's that going to look like in the next generation? Because values are caught, they're not taught. Maybe right now there's a secret sin. Maybe you're going places on the internet and you don't think it really matters and you've been told that it's a victimless crime and it doesn't really matter, it doesn't hurt anybody but me. But it could be right now that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and he's saying, let me tell you what that looks like in that next generation. Maybe there's something and God's saying, I want you to represent me in this generation so that those who come up after you will be able to represent me in the next generation. Each one of us here today is bearing the burden of poor decisions made from previous generations. Each one of us who is bearing that is responsible for how we deal with that. And the Bible says that there's coming a day when it'll be we die once and then the judgment. And so there's, there's no excuse. We can't go before God and say, well, I, you know, I did this. I, I'm a victim. I was hurting. And so you have to excuse this. God says, no, you're responsible. And there's coming that judgment. I wonder if today, there would be those here today who would say, I know I'm bearing the weight or the brunt of decisions that were made before I even came here. And, and maybe I've been using those as an excuse to not be everything that God's called me to be. But today I realize that I'm responsible for my decisions. And I'm responsible because what I'm doing is going to be passed on to the next generation. My involvement with my faith, if it's casual, will show up in the next generation as a very casual relationship with God. It's been said that you and I, those of us who are baby boomers, and a lot of you are Xers or whatever, but it says that a baby boomers over 40% go to church. But something's taken place in our generation so that the next generation, statistically, it's somewhere between 3 and 4% will actually go to church and have any relationship with God. I believe it's because 
the generation that I come from and maybe the generation that was before me was casual about our relationship with God. And over time, that just leads to more and more of a casual relationship as it relates to God. And so now, our greatest commitment is showing up at church once or twice a month. But we're so casual in our walk with God that actually serving God in any way, actually putting him first in any way, is so foreign to our ears and to our mindset. And could it be that if you were to be painfully honest, you would say, you know, God, you're not number one in my life in any area. And now you have these children. And somehow you think that by God not being number one in your life, that somehow your kids are going to grow up and somehow miraculously, God's going to be number one in their life. The picture in the Bible is that what I start as a parent, it's going to be amplified in the next generation and in the next generation.